Father, we praise you this morning for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the life that we have in him. We do believe in you, God, our Father. And we believe in you, Son, Jesus Christ, and we believe in you, Holy Spirit. And we're so grateful for this truth. We're so grateful for the promise of redemption that we get right from the beginning of your word, the promise to send your Son into the world to buy us back from the bondage of sin and death and restore our relationship with you. And today, Lord, we just celebrate that. We worship and praise you for the world and its beauty that we see with our eyes outside today. We praise you for the life of Christ that we have come together to to know and learn more about. We praise you for your spirit that resides in each one of us who've said that we believe. What a gift. Thank you, Lord. May you be glorified in everything that happens this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. You could have been very tempted to be outside in your garden today, but... This is so much better. All right, let's talk about this lesson. We're, this is the, the second of our overview lessons. I want to give you just a little insight that when you go to your groups to discuss this lesson this week, keep in mind that it's an overview. It's not meant to answer all of the questions that it raises. In our leaders meeting this morning, we found that it was raising all kinds of questions, and I wanted to just assure them, as I want to assure you, that as we go now deep into our study, starting next week, many of these answers to your questions will be identified. But this is just to get us thinking about all the different ways in which redemption is seen as we look at the Pentateuch. And so thinking about this word redemption, the first thing that came to my mind was Just remembering when I was a little girl, my mom used to save blue chip stamps. Does anybody remember blue chip stamps? Seriously, it's like awakening from the past when you look at these things. So my mom, every time she would go to the grocery store, there were also the S&H green stamps. How many of you remember those? Okay, see, those must have been more popular. They were both. Every time we would go to the grocery store, we would get handed so many stamps depending on the purchase that we made that day. And so it's kind of equivalent to today, you know, you go and you get a punch card. And as soon as you get all the punches, then you get free stuff, usually whatever that restaurant is selling or whatever. But I remember just spending hours and hours licking and pasting these stamps into books. My mom, for some reason, thought it was a good chore for me to do, is to lick and paste all of those blue chip stamps into those little booklets. And then we had a catalog of tantalizing things that we could get for free if we just saved up so many booklets of stamps. I remember there was lawn furniture, and there was dining room sets, and sewing machines, and silverware, and plates, and all kinds of toasters and irons and all kinds of appliances. And of course, the number of booklets you had to save up to get that good stuff was extraordinary. Like who in the world would be able to lick that many stamps and fill that many booklets? But that's what we would do. We would lick and paste and lick and paste until finally we had every booklet plastered with stamps. And you know, there couldn't be one square free. It had to be a complete, every page had to be completely filled. And then we would gather our bundles of all our books and we would go down to the redemption store. It was the store for us. It was in downtown Oakland, California. And so we would go down to this redemption store and this is where we redeem our, our stamps for that special household item that we so desperately wanted. 
I just remember walking into that store and seeing all of the different things with the signs of how many booklets you had to have to get such and such. And my mom, I remember, traded our booklets of stamps in for Corningware dishes. That was what she wanted. And so I always remember that we got those for free <laughs> from, from our blue chip stamps. So redemption is a word that we use in many different contexts, and um, it's the title of the theme of our study this year, so I thought this would be a good time to really talk about what does this word mean? What does redemption mean? What I want to do is go back to the book of Genesis and look at how redemption began in the book of Genesis. The whole idea of it was came in the book of Genesis chapter 3, and then we're going to look at Exodus chapter 11 and 12 and see how the activity of redemption played out as we look at the Passover in Genesis. What we're going to learn today is that Jesus Christ is the promised Redeemer, and we see that from the very beginning of Scripture, the promise of a coming Redeemer, and we see it all the way through, and we will see over and over again, this is one story from Genesis to Revelation pointing to Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the plan for redemption. First of all, what does this word mean? I looked it up in the dictionary, and I've got three definitions I found for you. First, it means the improving of something. So that means they said it's the act of saving something or somebody from a declined, dilapidated, or corrupted state and restoring it, him or her, to a better condition. That sounds like a good definition. It's also defined as a redeemed state, which is the improved state of somebody or something saved from apparently irreversible decline. Or actually, the dictionary defines it as this, atonement for human sin, deliverance from the sins of humanity by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The biblical understanding of redemption is oftentimes to equate it with salvation. When we think of redemption, we think of being saved, being saved from our sins. But the original meaning was actually more closely associated with deliverance from bondage. So there's this definite sense of being bound and then delivered. The word comes actually from the ancient East commercial world where slaves were bought and sold on the slave market. And so um, the idea of redemption was literally to purchase someone who was a slave out of the marketplace of slavery, buy them unto yourself, and set them free to deliver them from bondage. In the biblical context, when we read the Bible and we see redemption, we see it in terms of people, property, animals, things that were in bondage and need outside help to be released from bondage. So the key thing when we understand redemption is that the person who's in bondage is unable to set themselves free. They cannot release themselves. It actually requires a redeemer, someone who has social means, who has physical strength, who has spiritual power, who can come in and release the captive from bondage, who can deliver them unto freedom. So when we go to the book of Genesis, this is where we first see how humanity became bound by sin, what happened, what went wrong, and how God first reveals his plan to release mankind from bondage. And so that's why I want to look at the Genesis story, looking in, verses, in chapter 3, verses 14 through 25. So as 
If you're unfamiliar with the Genesis story, it's okay. We're going to go in great depth next week. We're going to do chapters 1 and 4 next week. But if you're familiar with the Genesis story, you know that it's not long after Adam and Eve chose to sin by disobeying God's instructions in the Garden of Eden that God then reveals his plan to redeem mankind. It's really early on in Scripture that we find there is a plan to redeem this brokenness that happened in the world. Um, We find that... um, that the reality is that when sin entered the world, there became an enslavement to sin. There became a death associated with sin. That death was a physical death, as in the body dies, people don't live forever, and also a spiritual death in that there's a separation that happens between a holy God and sinful man. So this death happens on two levels. But God right away has a plan, and we see that in Genesis three fourteen through 15. What God does in these verses, it's the first prophecy spoken of in the Bible, and what we see is that right away, God has a a way to literally buy us back from the slave market of sin and death and buy us back into a relationship with himself to restore what was broken, to heal. And so we see this beginning in Genesis 3.14. It says, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So God is speaking specifically, notice, to the serpent when he says these words. The serpent is the one who attempted Eve into sin, tempted her to eat the forbidden fruit, which brought sin into the human race. And he's pronouncing, do you notice, he's pronouncing judgment on the animal, It seems that the serpent used to be an upright creature because part of the judgment that he's pronouncing is that this creature is now going to slither on his belly. He's no longer going to be upright. God's curse, though, if you notice, is on the serpent and the earth. His curse is not on the man and the woman. And then in verse 15, God actually declares war on Satan. This is a war that ensues between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. He says in verse 15, I will bring enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That word enmity, it means hate or antagonism or hostility. And God is saying to the serpent, I'm going to bring hate, antagonism, and hostility between you, serpent, and the woman, between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, this is a prophecy, particularly, that says that from the seed of woman will come an offspring who will crush or defeat Satan and all of his followers. But notice that it doesn't mention the seed of man. It says specifically, from the seed of woman We fast forward into the New Testament and we find that Jesus is actually referred to as the seed of woman because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and of woman. He was not conceived with the seed of man. He was born of a virgin. He was the offspring of woman. It's so fitting that since sin entered the world through a woman, through Eve, who first disobeyed and then passed it to her husband Adam, It's fitting then that God would ordain that it would be through a woman that a redeemer would come into the world. In Genesis 3.15, it's our first hint that God had a plan to bring a savior Messiah into the world to defeat Satan and to redeem mankind from the ravages of sin and death. 
God then, in this, as we go on in Genesis 3, he goes on to pronounce specific judgments upon Adam for his disobedience and upon Eve for her disobedience. We'll talk about those probably next week when we get into this passage. Um, but the Lord had given them very specific instructions. He had given them to Adam, but we know that Eve also knew of them. They were instructions about all they could enjoy in the Garden of Eden. They could enjoy all the fruit, all the trees, all the beauty. But there was one instruction, and that was that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that that tree was forbidden. God said that if they ate of it, they would surely die. Look at Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, the serpent had tempted Eve to actually doubt God's word. In Genesis 3, 4, the serpent says to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. But in then in Genesis 3.19, as we go on in this passage, God confirms that indeed Adam and Eve and all of mankind will now return to dust because sin has entered the human race. And as Romans 6.23 tells us, the wages of sin is death. Genesis 3.19, God goes on and says to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So death would now be what physically separates man from life on this planet, man from relationship with man. So human relationships are broken because of sin. Death comes into the physical body because of sin. And the relationship between holy God and sinful man is now separated because of sin. But God immediately has a plan how he's going to redeem this brokenness, how he's going to, going to buy this brokenness back unto himself, this brokenness that sin imposed. And we see the first hint of this redemption right here in Genesis 3. It's in verse 21 where God does something next that's very profound. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. It's a simple sentence, and we might just pass over it and say, Okay, big deal. But the thing was that Adam and Eve, once they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became aware of what was good and what was evil. And they instantly knew that by their disobedience, they had invited evil into the world. And so they were ashamed. They suddenly recognized that their bodies were naked. They felt shame upon themselves because they understood that they had sinned. And they wanted to cover their shame. And they began to blame each other for who caused who to do what. And so their eyes were open to good and evil. They recognized their disobedience, and they tried to immediately cover themselves with fig leaves. But that wasn't enough. Their hearts were aware that something else had changed in their relationship with God and in their relationship with each other. They actually needed a covering for sin and guilt that was more than just a covering for their nakedness. So what God did... Remember, Adam and Eve were living in a beautiful garden. They had named the animals. They were living in perfect peace and harmony. And what God did was he actually killed some animals to provide skins to cover their bodies. He was teaching them that actually the only way to cover their nakedness and their shame and their guilt 
was that blood had to be shed from an innocent life, from an innocent animal, in order to provide the skins to cover their nakedness. So this beautiful animal's blood, this innocent animal's blood, first, first shedding of blood for sin, was killed in the garden to provide these skins to cover them, not only their nakedness, but because of their guilt, because of their sin. This was actually a foreshadow of the first sacrifice for sin that would happen later as God called a people unto himself and taught them how to be in relationship with him. Later, as we see in Exodus, the Jews were required to bring a perfect, unblemished lamb to the altar of sacrifice, and this is where they would actually name their sins upon this animal's head. There would be times during the year where they would go to the temple and they would bring this, this lamb or this goat that was just perfect in every way, unblemished. They would bring it to the altar. They bring it to the priest. They would put their hands over it. They would confess their sins and the sins of their whole household. And then the man would kill the animal and the priest then would take that blood and bring it into the altar of sacrifice and pronounce that because of the shed blood of this innocent animal, this man and his family were now forgiven of their sins. It was the way that God was teaching them that life is in the blood and a life must be paid for sin. The wages of sin is death. But the life of a substitute, the life of an animal who was not guilty, that blood could, could be atoned, that could be a payment for the sins of the man and, and restore relationship, enact forgiveness between God and man. So all of this, of course, was pointing forward to the day when the Messiah would come, was teaching the people that the Messiah is going to come, a Savior is going to come one day and shed his blood for your sins. This was in preparation for Jesus. So it's no mistake then, fast forward to the New Testament, when John the Baptist is baptizing people and getting ready to announce Jesus as the Messiah, when he sees Jesus coming and he proclaims out loud in John 1.29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He proclaims so that everyone can know this is the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was without sin. He was the perfect unblemished Lamb. And when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he took our sins upon himself and proclaimed us forgiven. He died in our place like those animals in Genesis died to provide covering for the sins of Adam and Eve. Jesus died to provide forgiveness. His blood covers our sins so that we're forgiven. So we are now actually clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We are now um, forgiven and we are, we are given eternal life in place of guilt and eternal separation from God because through what Jesus did on the cross, he has delivered us, he has redeemed us from the bondage of sin and death. All we have to do is just accept it. Our part is so is so easy, except our hearts are so hard. It makes it hard. But all we have to do is just accept it. We just have to agree that what Jesus did on the cross was for, for me, and it was for you. And then we are forgiven and set free to live a new life in Christ. So the, the truth I want us to see is that God offers forgiveness of sin and eternal life through Jesus Christ. He offers us this, forgiveness and eternal life. He offers to forgive your sins and my sins, and to restore our relationship with God. He offers to redeem that which was broken and to restore us back unto himself. Jesus said that whoever believes in him and commits his life, her life to him, will pass from death unto life. 
That in, and if we believe, all we're doing is agreeing that what God says is true. We're just saying, we agree. Yes, God, what you said is true. And then when we do, we never experience death. We never experience separation from God. You know, the minute we agree that it's true, the Lord gives us his Holy Spirit. And so never again are we separated from God because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And then when we leave this earth, when our bodies go to dust, we go from life to life. We go from life here into the presence of Christ. We never experience separation from God ever for all eternity. That is an amazing, amazing gift. I wonder if you would just think for a minute with, about your life before God. Imagine you're in the garden and you're sinful and God walks in and he sees you. Are you naked and ashamed? Are you full of guilt and regret because of the mistakes that you have made? Or are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Have you already received the sacrifice of Christ for your sins so you can stand before him in relationship with him and not feel like you need to hide and cover? That's what Jesus' shed blood did on the cross for us. There's freedom for you and me to be released from the bondage of guilt and shame and to be what's called redeemed. That's redemption. It is such a precious gift to us that comes only through the blood of Christ. Let me show you another story just to see how the activity of redemption was seen in Exodus with the Israelites. Fast forward, which we'll get to in our lessons, 400 years, the Israelites are in Egypt and they're in bondage. They're in slavery to the Egyptians. The Egyptian taskmasters were brutal slave masters. They oppressed the people. The people were crying out to their God for deliverance. It was a horrible time for them. But the Lord heard their cries, and he sent his servant Moses to go and free his people from Egypt so they could go into their own land and they could worship him as the one true God. And so he told Moses, he said, you must go to Pharaoh and you must tell Pharaoh that he needs to set my people free. I have heard their cries and I want to free them from this oppression. This is an amazing story that we will look at when we get to Exodus 11 and 12, but it is such a vivid, tangible understanding of redemption. The background is this. God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to set my people free. Pharaoh is, is, a, is a righteous, self-righteous, prideful um, guy. He has a hard heart, and he's like, absolutely not. I mean, he lies. He says yes, and then he says no, and it's, a, it's an amazing story. But God sends nine plagues. The people are suffering. Uh, Pharaoh is suffering. He refuses to let God's people go. And so um, Pharaoh... God then finally says there's going to be one more plague, and this plague is going to bring great suffering upon the people, but it is what will finally let my people go. In Exodus 11, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. And then Moses announces to Pharaoh and to the people exactly what God's going to do. So Moses says, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. 
But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. Moses brings this ominous word to Pharaoh, and of course Pharaoh will not listen. Of course, he doesn't, doesn't heed God at this point. This plague is going to be worse than all the nine plagues that have come before it. And it says the firstborn will die. This means that Pharaoh's own firstborn son is going to die. And there's going to be mourning in the land. This is going to be a time of national distress. But Israel is going to be protected. God was preparing for their deliverance from slavery. He's preparing for their exodus. Um, He's redeeming his people from their bondage under the heavy taskmasters of slavery. He's calling them out unto himself, restoring relationship, bringing them to a promised land. It's about deliverance of his people, freedom again, that they would have to worship him. But the Israelites, they had to respond by faith to what God was saying as well. They had to believe his word and they had to obey it in order to be saved. There was something that they had to do in order to be saved from this 10th plague. Listen to what God told his people to do. Chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. So basically he's saying um, God is providing that if you have a small household, you you can gather with another household and you can share with your neighbors. He's very particular about this these instructions. But I want you to note that he said that it was on the 10th day of the month, specifically on that particular day, that a household would take a one year old lamb or sheep without any defect and take it into their homes on the 10th day. He says in verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, imagine this lamb on the 10th day, you've brought it into your home, you're keeping it in your house for four days. You're feeding it, you're getting to know it, you're caring for it cute little one-year-old, little sheep or goat in your home, and then on the 14th day, you're going to kill this animal. This is not only going to feel very personal, it's going to feel very, very painful. Then the animal was, after it was killed at twilight on the 14th day, the blood of that animal was going to be smeared on the sides of the doorframe and on above the doorpost. They would use a hyssop branch like a paintbrush to take the blood You can imagine how disgusting this would be and how painful this would be to paint the doorpost with blood. He goes on to say, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. 
The whole animal then is to be roasted with bitter herbs, and the bitter herbs were to remind them of their bitter years of being in slavery in Egypt. Notice that it says the whole animal, so the bones of the animal were not to be broken. The whole animal was to be roasted. And then while the the roasted lamb was being eaten, he goes on to instruct them that every member of the family needs to be prepared to head out at any moment. You're eating while you're dressed, shoes on, clothes tucked in, staff in hand, ready to go. He says in verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. In other words, you're ready. You're eating it with great expectation that you're going to be ready to go. Anything that was left over, he said, was to be burned. There would be no time for leftovers in the morning. So God was so meticulous in his instructions to the people. The people actually needed to obey every single word he said. They needed to do exactly as he instructed them to do because obedience in this moment was vital to salvation. But you need to bear in mind that these instructions were completely nonsensical to the Israelites. See, we're reading this with hindsight. So we have the whole story in mind. We say, oh, of course, this makes perfect sense. We know the beginning from the end. But for them, they had never done anything like this before. They had no idea what this meant. Why were they taking an innocent lamb? Why did they have to eat the way they did and cook the way they did and have their shoes and everything on ready to leave? Why were they painting blood on their doorposts? It had no rhyme and reason for them. They had to hear something from God very meticulously explained, and they had to obey on faith, not because they understood what was coming next. And yet God, in his unfathomable wisdom, had designed the most magnificent plan, and it required only one thing, obedience. That's why Nike says, just do it. That's what they were saying. Just, God was saying, just do what I tell you to do. I have to pause there and ask myself and ask you this question. Is there something that God has instructed you to do and you haven't done it? Is there a prompting, a tapping on the shoulder, something that's been nudging at your heart where God has been saying, I really want you to obey me in this way? And you're going, ah, la, 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 la. Later, 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 not now. So many times in my life, when God comes to me and asks me to do something for him, I will typically say, oh, not now, maybe in five years or 10 years, or, and it's always a now type of thing. He calls me to obey him now, and I can't understand what it's about or where it's going to lead, but it's a very strong prompting that I need to obey him. This is really important. The thing is that we don't like that word obey very well. We kind of feel like when we get to be adults, that part of our adulthood means that we just get to do what we want. But obedience to God at any stage in life can be a matter of life and death. You know with your kids, when you tell them to obey you, it's for their own best good. When you tell your kids, don't run out into the street, it's not because you're trying to be mean because you don't want them to run and enjoy life. It's because you know that they could die if they get hit by a car. And nothing changes for us as we get older when God speaks to us and he says, I really need you to obey me. My word is true. It's for usually life and death. It's maybe physical life and death, but certainly it's about the very best for us. It's about how we live the very best life in Christ. And it makes all the difference that we obey. Obedience was a matter of life and death for Israel too, because look at what happens next. He says, it's the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And that night, because God's people did exactly what he told them to do, he passed over their homes, and death didn't come to their firstborn. The Israelites were saved and set free, but in the morning, all of the Egyptians were mourning. Pharaoh then finally let his people go. The truth is that God redeems his people with the blood of the Lamb. He redeemed his people with the blood of the Lamb at the Passover, and he redeems his people with the blood of the Lamb, and the Lamb is Jesus Christ. We know as we study the rest of Scripture that the Passover in Exodus is a foreshadow of the cross that God is teaching his people to look forward to the Messiah who's going to come, and this is what this is going to look like. This is what the cross is going to look like. Jesus met all of the requirements of the sacrificial Passover lamb. He was the perfect lamb of God. He was the beloved son of God, perfectly without sin. Even his enemies tried to find some reason to persecute him, and they actually sent him to the cross for saying the truth, that he was the son of God. The Passover lamb, as we noticed, was was slain on the 14th day. When Jesus went to the cross, it was during the Passover feast on on the Jewish calendar. Remember, God said, this is going to be a new calendar for you. There's going to be new things starting. Jesus died on the cross during the Passover, and he died 1,400 years later. Just as with the lamb, it wasn't the life of the lamb in their home that provided salvation from judgment, it was the death of the lamb. It was the blood of the lamb being posted, being painted over the doorpost that caused the angel of death to pass over them. In the same way, it's not the life of Jesus that provides salvation. It's the death of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus on the cross. It's the death and resurrection of Christ that provides um, for our redemption, for our deliverance from judgment. And I say that in particular because many people will say that that, you know, Jesus was such a great person, you know, he, he was such a good man, that he lived such a great life and he taught us such great things, but they reject the cross. They reject his shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so we have to know that there is a parallel here. It's the blood that was shed of Christ that covers our sins. So why do we need redemption today? We live in a different time than Genesis or Exodus Um, Certainly, we don't live in bondage under a nation. Um, We don't live in slavery like the Egyptians do. Um, But we have all sinned. We are born with sin in our DNA. We all have missed the mark of God's holy standard. Do you know what God's holy standard is? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Ten Commandments of Moses boiled down into the two. The reality is that none of us have loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and none of us have loved our neighbors as ourselves. Therefore, we are guilty of being sinful people. And sin will not only cause our physical death one day, but it separates us from God. We've missed his holy standard. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. And that's the penalty for sin that Jesus bore on the cross 
on our behalf when he died in our place. He was our substitute, just like the lamb was the substitute. He is our substitute. He paid that penalty so that we then will be passed over in judgment. We don't stand before God in judgment when we receive what Christ has done on the cross. We stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are welcomed into his family. We are his beloved children. We are children of God. It's, Romans says that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand before God without any condemnation because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And sometimes we might say, well, Jesus died 2,000 years ago. How does what he did count for me? Or how does he die for all the sins of the people in the world who will receive him as Savior? It's because he was one man who died for all sin because he was an infinite God. He was fully God and fully man. So he could die for a multitude of sins. And then those sins that he died for that we're forgiven of will never come back in our faces and accuse us or haunt us again. We look to to Psalm 103, which says, For high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has, has he removed our transgressions from us. The thing is, it's not though just sufficient to know that to know that he did that 2,000 years ago, that he, sac- he sacrificed, shed his blood on a cross, we actually have to appropriate that sacrifice to ourselves. It means that I have to actually accept that what he did was for my sins, that he died for me, he died in my place, that he died in your place for your sins. And I have to accept that so that God will pass over me in judgment, that I will never stand condemned to eternal death that he died for my sins, past, present, and future, and that I have access to him to just simply come and ask forgiveness at any time because I am in a relationship that's been restored, been redeemed. I have been, because of what Jesus did on the cross, he has rescued me out of the bondage of sin and death. Sin now has no power over me, and he has brought me into a relationship of love with him. What I also love about a relationship with God, is I see this over and over in my life, is that not only has he redeemed me in my relationship with him, but he is constantly in the act of redeeming the brokenness of my life. Time and time again, he reaches down into the most broken sufferings of my life, and he buys it back for his own glory and for my good. He can take disease, he can take marriage problems, he can take my own terrible mistakes, my own heart attitudes, and he, can, he reaches into that and he buys it back unto himself in a way that then brings him glory and does me good. And so we don't, nece- we don't just live in a redemptive relationship with him, a state before him, we live in an ongoing experience of walking with him through life and watching him restore the brokenness and Use it for his own glory and for our good. Do you understand these, the urgency of your salvation before God? Do you understand that judgment, to be passed over in judgment, is only possible through a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you received him as your Passover lamb? I was thinking just about how costly redemption is. You know, even as I was thinking of these blue chip stamps, How much money did my mom spend at the grocery store just to get those stamps? How many choices did she make to buy more than she needed or to go to a special store that might have been more expensive just to get the stamps, just to fill the booklets, just to get the free stuff? 
But the same is true for our salvation, that it's by the grace of God, Jesus is the one who bore the cost of our forgiveness upon the cross so that we could be released from the wages of sin and death. The rest of Romans 6.23 is so beautiful. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.